people talk about, oh, well, you know, Muhammad Ali is great because he stood up for what he believed in. No, that's not it. What makes him different is that he stood for what he stood for. And he stood for poor people. He stood for underdogs. He stood for peace. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contributors tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today featuring Muhammad Ali himself, Tom Hartman, Democracy Now!, Edge of Sports with Dave Zirin, Citizen Radio, and Counterspin. Ali defeated Foley by a knockout in the seventh round. Immediately thereafter, he walked into the teeth of a monumental decision. He was drafted, and then he refused induction on the grounds of his religious convictions on war. My conscience won't let me go shoot my brother or some darker people or some poor hungry people in the mud for big powerful America and shoot them for what? They never called me nigger. They never lynched me. They didn't put no dogs on me. They didn't rob me of my nationality rape and kill my mother and father. Well, I'm going to shoot them for what? How am I going to shoot them? Them little poor little black people, little babies and children and women. How can I shoot them poor people? I would just take me to jail. While fighting imprisonment for his stand, Ali was also stripped of his title, denied a license to fight in the United States, and denied a visa to go overseas to fight. He was in a much tighter financial bind than most were aware of. I don't know if I see the world every champion driving a Volkswagen, guys in the Cadillacs and making fun of you. So I'm working today, I'm hauling, right? I'm <laughs> and so I had to, one day I had to speak at Canisius. Heard of Canisius? Canisius, Ferdinand Dickinson, CW Post. Three colleges and $1,500 a college. Pretty good money. So I broke my wife's piggy bank. About, she had about $35 in it. I broke the, no, I'm sorry, $135. I broke the piggy bank to get gas money to get me to the college. And I got enough gas and food money to get the $4,500, the three fifteen hundred dollars And 45 would hold me, pay gas bills, light bills, till I get to the next college. <laughs> this went on until the whole mess was over. Inevitably, students would challenge Ali on his stand and his convictions. Remarkably, Ali more than held his own against students who had a far better formal education than he. I'm saying you're talking about me about some draft, and all of you white boys are breaking your neck to get to Switzerland and Canada and London. I'm not going to help nobody get something my Negroes don't have. If I'm going to die, I'll die now right here fighting you. If I'm going to die, you my enemy. My enemy is a white people, not Vietnams or Chinese or Japanese. You my opposer when I'm on freedom. You my opposer when I want justice. You my opposer when I want equality. You won't even stand up for me in America for my religious beliefs, and you want me to go somewhere and fight, but you won't even stand up for me here at home. I want to turn to the famed singer-songwriter John Legend, reading the words of Muhammad Ali's 1966 speech on Vietnam. In 1966, with the war in Vietnam escalating rapidly, Muhammad Ali, the world heavyweight boxing champion, petitioned for exemption from military service. When this was denied, he refused to be drafted. His title was taken away from him, and he was sentenced to a five-year prison term. He appealed all the way to the Supreme Court, and in 1971, his conviction was finally reversed. In 1966, Ali spoke in Louisville, Kentucky, his hometown, about the reasons for not fighting in Vietnam. Why should they ask me to put on a uniform and go 10,000 miles from home and drop bombs and bullets on brown people in Vietnam? while so-called Negro people in Louisville 
are treated like dogs and denied simple human rights. No, I am not going 10,000 miles from home to help murder and burn another poor nation simply to continue the domination of white slave masters of the darker people the world over. This is the day when such evils must come to an end. I have been warned that to take such a stand would put my prestige in jeopardy and could cause me to lose millions of dollars which should accrue to me as the champion. But I have said it once and I will say it again. The real enemy of my people is right here. I will not disgrace my religion, my people, or myself by becoming a tool to enslave those who are fighting for their own justice, freedom, and equality. If I thought the war was going to bring freedom and equality to 22 million of my people, they wouldn't have to draft me. I'd join tomorrow. But I either have to obey the laws of the land or the laws of Allah. I have nothing to lose by standing up for my beliefs. So I'll go to jail. We've been in jail for 400 years. Muhammad Ali died. I remember him really well. I mean, I, I never met him, but uh, he, in 1966, he came out against the Vietnam War, and I, I, it was like a it was like an explosion went off. You know, I, it was just it was it was just it was an, an amazing thing, and uh, and his conversion to Islam as well. I mean, and. I guess my question with regard to not just Muhammad Ali, but also, I mean, you know, just like a whole bunch of folks, is why do we sanitize our heroes? Right? I mean, I watched some of the coverage over the weekend. Most of it was on Saturday and, and um, uh, you know, of the various homages to him. And uh, most of them did not point out that this guy was, uh, you know, a revolutionary. I mean, he took on the, the 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 military industrial complex in this country. He took on racism in this country. He took on, you know, bigotry in this. He, he and he took it on front, you know, straight ahead in an era when when you know when such things were not supposed to be done. Right? Um, there, this this. There's a, there's a remarkable piece uh, Dave Zirin wrote that's over at uh, Jacobin Magazine uh, titled The uh, Hidden History of, of Muhammad Ali. And, you know, in 1960, he was 18 years old, Muhammad Ali, and he won the Olympics on behalf of the United States as a boxer. He was Cassius Clay back then. And... He came back and he said, uh, to make America the greatest is my goal. So I beat the Russian and I beat the pole. And for the USA, won the medal of gold. The Greeks say, you're better than the Cassius of old. And one week after he got back from the Olympics, he, 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 so, he so loved that gold medal that he won. Here's, here's this 18-year-old guy. He so loved that gold medal that he, he literally wore it everywhere he went. And a week later, wearing the gold medal around his neck, that he won on behalf of his country in the Olympics. A week after the Olympics, Wilma Rudolph uh, wrote, you know, he slept with it. This is about the medal. He, he slept with it. He went to the cafeteria with it. He never took it off. And then we get to Dave, Dave Zarin says, the week after returning home from the Olympics, Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali, 
Clay went to eat a cheeseburger with his medal swinging around his neck in a Louisville restaurant and was denied service. He threw his medal in the Ohio River. Can you imagine? The day after he beat Sonny Liston, he announced that he was coming out as a member of the, of the uh, Nation of Islam, Louis Farrakhan's organization, that he was becoming a Muslim, or that he had become, actually. And Dave, uh, Dave writes, uh, there's no words for the firestorm this caused, particularly the uh, conservative, mobbed-up, corrupt fight world folks. They basically kind of lost their minds. And basically, they were, you know, they were saying to him, why don't you just, you know, be like, like Jackie Robinson, you know, just be kind of a nice, quiet guy and behave. And, and, you know, we got to work along here. And he's, and he comes out and he says, this was, um, yeah, 1960, 60, well, this was 65, it must have been, Sonny Liston fight. I'd have to go back. I find the year. But anyhow, he says, I ain't no Christian. I can't be. When I see all the colored people fighting for forced integration get blown up, they get hit by the stones and chewed by dogs. And then these crackers blow up a Negro church. People are always telling me what a good example I would be if I just wasn't Muslim. I heard over and over. Why couldn't I just be more like Joe Lewis and Sugar Ray? Well, they are gone. And a black man's condition is just the same, ain't it? We're still catching hell. And then, of course, you know, coming out against the Vietnam War in 1966, he was drafted and his response was he was classified 1A to be drafted. And his response was, man, I ain't got no quarrel with them Viet Cong. Now, this was the early 66. This was the month that Life magazine's cover read Vietnam. The war is worth winning. And the, the song Ballad of the Green Berets was climbing up the charts as Dave, Dave Zirin points out. And, you know, I remember that really well. And, and Muhammad Ali, at one press conference later that year, he was expected to apologize for being opposed to the war. Instead, he got up and said, keep asking me, no matter how long, on the war in Vietnam, I sing this song, I ain't got no quarrel with the Viet Cong. Now, a year later, 1967, Muhammad Ali is being prosecuted for this, and Martin Luther King comes out against the war. In fact, Martin Luther King, uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, like, like Muhammad Ali puts it, we are all, black and brown and poor, victims of the same system of oppression. And Muhammad Ali said, why should they ask me to put on a uniform and go 10,000 miles from home and drop bombs and bullets on brown people in Vietnam while so-called Negro people in Louisville are treated like dogs and denied simple human rights? No, I'm not going to go 10,000 miles from home to help murder and burn another poor nation simply to continue the domination of white slave masters of the darker people the world over. This is the day when such evils must come to an end. I've been warned that to take such a stand would cost me millions of dollars, but I've said it once, I'll say it again, the real enemy of my people is here. I will not disgrace my religion, my people, or myself by becoming a tool to enslave those who are fighting for their own justice, freedom, and equality. If I thought the war is going to bring freedom and equality to the 22 million of my people, they wouldn't have to draft me. I'd join tomorrow. I have nothing to lose by standing up for my beliefs, so I'll go to jail. So what? We've been in jail for 400 years. A brilliant man has has passed along. No George Foreman ever called me quitter. No Vietcong ever called me nigger. Threw my gold medal in the Ohio River. I won for the land of the free. Goodbye. Float like a butterfly. Stay like a bee. Float like that was Muhammad Ali describing his return to Louisville, Kentucky after winning the 1960 Olympic gold medal. Four years later, he became the heavyweight champion of the world, defeating Sonny Liston.
After the fight, he declared, I am the greatest. And the next day, the then Cassius Clay shocked the sports world and announced he was joining the Nation of Islam and changing his name. After briefly being named Cassius X, Nation of Islam leader Elijah Muhammad renamed him Muhammad Ali. For years, many news outlets refused to refer to the boxer by his new name, instead using what Ali called his slave name. Muhammad Ali grew close to Malcolm X, and he became a vocal critic of U.S. actions at home and abroad. The FBI and National Security Agency soon began monitoring his communication. In 1966, Muhammad Ali filed for conscientious objector status and announced his refusal to fight in Vietnam. My conscience won't let me go shoot my brother or some darker people or some poor hungry people in the mud for big powerful America and shoot them for what? They never call me nigger. They never lynch me. They never put no dogs on me. They never rob me of my nationality rape and kill my mother and father. Well, I'm going to shoot them for what? How can I go shoot them? Them little poor little black people, little babies and children and women. How can I shoot them poor people? I would just take me to jail. After Muhammad Ali's conscientious objector status request was denied in April 1967, he refused induction. Muhammad Ali's title was taken away from him. He was sentenced to a five-year prison term. He appealed all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And in 1971, his conviction was finally reversed. He did not go to prison, but was forced to wait four years before regaining his boxing license. In 1974, Muhammad Ali reclaimed world heavyweight champion title, defeating George Foreman in what was known as the Rumble in the Jungle, an historic boxing match in Kinshasa, Zaire, now the Democratic Republic of the Congo. This is a clip from the documentary, When We Were Kings. Yeah, I'm in Africa. Yeah, Africa's my home. Damn America and what America faced. Yeah, I live in America, but Africa's the home of the black man. And I was a slave 400 years ago, and I'm going back home to fight among my brothers. In addition to fighting overseas, Muhammad Ali grew increasingly involved in world affairs. During a visit to two Palestinian refugee camps in southern Lebanon, Ali said, quote, in my name and the name of all Muslims in America, I declare support for the Palestinian struggle to liberate their homeland and oust the Zionist invaders, unquote. In 1990, Muhammad Ali traveled to Baghdad and met with Saddam Hussein against the wishes of the U.S. government. During the trip, he secured the release of 15 Americans being held by the Iraqi government. This is the legend of Cassius Clay, the most beautiful fighter in the world today. He talks a great deal and brags indeedy of a muscular punch that's incredibly speedy. This brash young boxer is something to see, and the heavyweight championship is his destiny. He is the greatest. Great, he's got speed and endurance. But if you sign to fight him, increase your insurance. <laughs> this kid's got a left. This kid's got a right. If he hits you once, you're asleep for the night. Can I ask you? Um, we talk about this idea of Greek tragedy for me, and I know I'm projecting my own politics onto the tragedy here. But this idea of someone who spoke so eloquently against war finds himself unable to speak, his face an expressionless mask being led to George W. Bush, who puts a medal around his neck. And this idea of like, does Muhammad Ali, A, does he know what's happening right now? B, does he agree with what's happening right now? And C, is there an issue of consent here in terms of him being in the White House and getting this medal from George Bush? You know, that, that that's a wonderful question. And it also maybe goes to the heart of something you and I have talked about so many times, about Muhammad Ali as this kind of magnetic slate on which we can put, you know, our uh, wishes, hopes, bumper stickers mm -hmm. on. I mean, who really knows? Uh, who really knows, you know, what went on inside, even, for, even from the very beginning? His closest biographer, Tom Hauser, 
spent an awful lot of time with him, probably more concentrated time than anybody in the 90s when he was writing that big oral biography, always felt that Ali was uh, stunted emotionally, that you know he probably had reached the level of a 12-year-old. So much of what he did and said was the, you know, the quick study of a, of a somewhat innocent mind, a childlike mind. I mean, he, he was capable of things that we would interpret, but exactly what did they mean? I mean, every time he saw me and, and said, and knowing that I was Jewish, he would say, so what's the difference between a Jew and a canoe? And I would, you know, pretend I didn't know the answer. And he would say, oh, a canoe tips. Well, was this a joke? Was this a way of connecting? Was this a 12-year-old? Was this a way of asserting, you know, his independence from whatever you might want him to be? You know, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the answer really is, yeah. I mean, you and I both wanted him, you know, to rip that metal you know, off his neck and stick it in George's face. Yes. <laughs> but he was he he was happy to be in the, in the in the White House. He was happy to be honored, I'm sure. You know, so what did he ever mean at any point? What really makes me crazy right now is this hagiographic pieces running in which he uh, is is described as one of the leading civil rights leaders of his time. Well, you know, that's not quite true. I mean, remember when people were being beaten in the South and dogs set on a water hose, you know, he belongs to the segregationist uh, black Muslims uh, who were trying to make deals with you know, Southern states and the KKK, you know, to carve out black enclaves until the spaceships came down and all but the righteous were killed and they were carried away to a better planet. But, but isn't that, I agree that the hagiographies are nauseating, but isn't like this, that what you just described part of what makes him so amazing? I mean, the heavyweight champion of the world joining an organization that called white people devils. I mean, it's, it really, it's like, it would be like uh, Nancy Reagan joining the lesbian Avengers. I mean, it's an amazing <laughs> thing. You know, so that's good. yeah, thank you. It's thank a good you. one. Thank you. So, so it that's a, that's to me, and I think uh, Julian Bond once had this great line where he said, like, and he's of course a great civil rights leader. He said, "Yeah, we weren't big fans of the Nation of Islam, but it felt like he was telling white people to go to hell for us." Yeah, and I and Dick Gregory said the same thing, and that's true. And yet he was doing that. And on the other hand, you could also see. That because this is a complex and and wonderful and flawed human being, you could also see that this was a kid who had been abused at home, was insecure, who really wanted a father figure, and within this group, uh, found a kind of comfort and solace that he didn't really find, certainly not in white America, and and probably even within his family. So. Um, Part of us wants to say, yeah, man, he was really sticking it to the man back there in the 60s. And, and the other part is, well, he was also a kid who was kind of uh, finding a way of uh, insulating himself from a lot of uh, pain, a lot of things that were going on. But when we look at all the ways athletes over the decades have insulated themselves from pain, you know, and drugs are at the, certainly at the top of that list. Uh, or, or focusing on the next. Uh, event or focusing I mean, on the next uh, event. Uh, right? Training, training hard is another way of you know uh, squelching psychic pain, Tell physical pain. I think like telling so, the I mean, U.S. government have always done that. But yeah. David, let's get back to the point of um, you know that famous day where he said, "I got nothing against them, Viet Cong," and that became one of the banners of the '60s. You were there that day, right? Yeah, and that became a way of signifying what was happening. But at the very beginning of that day, uh, when he was first notified that his draft exemption has been changed to 1A, which made him immediately eligible, the first thing he said, the very first thing that he said was, why me? I'm heavyweight champ. All my tax dollars go to the government. Look at all the tanks and guns and soldiers' helmets. 
uh, that my tax dollars buy. Why draft me? Draft some poor boy from Louisville. So, I mean, that first gut reaction was, well, I think it was a very human reaction, and certainly in keeping with being a childlike heavyweight champion of the world, but it really was not, I got nothing against them, Viet Cong. It was not an expression of, you know, solidarity with colored people around the world. See, but that's why um, I, A, love these stories, and B, think that, they're they're the best defense against the hagiographic bullshit that I agree is all over the place because it does show an evolution of thought because a few years later he was making lyrical statements calling for solidarity with the darker skinned people of the world and speaking about the poor in the United States and rich man go to college and poor man goes to fight. And so, I mean, what you said before about him being a quick study and a master of improv, I think you you see that and you also see in miniature a kind of the 60s themselves like the like the kid who's shocked in the early 60s to find out he has to fight a war by the end of the 60s is drawing much more radical conclusions no you're absolutely right david and i i think that that's one of the things that we have to keep right in the face of history is the fact that he evolved that this was not a, a countercultural hero sprung from you know the the loins of Jesus. This really was somebody, you know, narrow, ignorant, poorly served by education, who really involved in to somebody who began to really understand his times, and that that's absolutely true. And I think one of the ways in which that occurred was during those three and a half years in which he was not able to fight and made his money on college campuses. It was the give and take, the Q&A with college students, that he slowly began to understand the larger fabric. And and by the end of that time, you know, he was a much more evolved human being, uh, religiously, politically, you know, socially, in every kind of a way. But I mean, I, I think that's really and important because as he was evolving, you know, so is America. And that, you know, one of the prime reasons for his acceptance in the seventies was the fact that so much of America had come around to his, his way of thinking about the war. Uh, and also I think that he came to feel admiration for the civil rights activists who really put their lives on the line and also to feel some sorrow ultimately in his betrayal of Malcolm, which, you know, was a terrible thing. So that was the beauty of Ali. And then, and then the terrible pain and irony of him being then shut down, you know, just at a time, uh, it would have been great to hear more from him. People considering it to be praise when you say stuff like they transcend race, like blackness is bad. Right. They finally got away from that icky blackness. Right. Good for them. Yeah. Transcending race is kind of like he's almost white and good like me. Yeah. Uh, I can almost like him because he's almost white, which means he's almost human. Yeah. Like, I really like how he's like post-race and sort of like, you know, reminds me of like Todd. Like, he could just like, he could just be like another, just another Todd Working at the bank, uh, getting mistreated by his wife and kids. Uh, just another, just another, just, just like me. He's just like me, Todd. Like, think about how weird it would be if someone had ever said, like, David Bowie transcended whiteness. Right. People would be like, what a weird, nonsensical thing to say. Yeah. Well, people should think the same thing about he transcended blackness. Because right. that's weird. Because no, he didn't. I'll just read my Facebook page instead of trying to 
like sum it up, which will just be me saying it shittier. Um, so I go, here's the thing. Muhammad Ali was a hero of mine, but not like my hero as in like, I didn't own him, you know, uh, as a fighter, as a man, as someone who tries to speak his mind, of course I looked up to him. I've watched research and tried to live my life love first. Like he did, but I'm white. I'm not Muslim. I've had to struggle. Like I haven't had to struggle like they have. And that's okay. That's another thing. Like it's okay. Like I think all these right wing people who are like, Oh, so it's bad because I'm white? It's like, no, 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 no. It's okay if you're not a fucking asshole. Yeah, and um, no one's saying you being white is bad. People are saying white supremacy right. is bad. You're projecting because chances are you saying that right now are a bad person. <laughs> as a person, as any person, any color, you're a shitty person. I uh, go, here's what's not okay. To say that Ali transcends race, uh, that he was all of ours, as some writers have tried to say. I think Time Magazine did that. Mm. So somebody in the comments was like, oh, I think you're talking about George Foreman. And I'm like, no what i'm not talking about a black boxer weird but anyway um earlier today i retweeted some sports personality who i think was famous he was like verified on twitter and he said when you saw ali you didn't see color you didn't see religion you saw a gentleman who was a strong fighter a champion you could believe in in which i responded to him and said i saw color because he talked about being black and proud i saw religion because he changed his fucking name to muhammad ali Mm -hmm. so how ignorant do you have to be when ali spoke out against the war this is another great quote from him that's pretty famous he said the draft was about white people sending black people to fight yellow people you don't get much clearer than that but what you're doing can keep me around i think that's so i might say I'm like Cassius Clay You're the name that we all say In 1964, Malcolm X spoke out in support of Muhammad Ali after the press began to attack him for joining the Nation of Islam. Well, he's never been involved in any trouble. His record is clean. He's actually an all-American boy or an all-African boy, as you will. And uh, an effort on the part of the press to attack him actually hurts America all over the world. I've gotten letters from countries myself, foreign countries, uh, expressing uh, confidence and pride in the clean image that Cassius represents. And I think to attack him, especially on religious grounds, would be most destructive to America's image abroad. My advice always to Brother Cassius is that he never do anything that will in any way tarnish or take away from his image as the heavyweight champion of the world because I frankly believe that Cassius is in a better position than anyone else to restore the uh, uh, a sense of uh, racial pride to not only our people in this country but all over the world and uh, he is trying his best to live a clean life and, and uh, project a clean image but despite this you find the press is constantly trying to paint him as something other than what he actually is he doesn't smoke he doesn't drink uh, in fact if he if he was white they would be referring to him as the all-american boy like they used to refer to jack armstrong so that's malcolm x uh, talking about muhammad ali and uh, the fact that he had converted ishmael reed and over the weekend you know the media was filled with images and discussions of muhammad ali and there were a number of photos that would go by uh, of him standing with malcolm x but there was almost no reference. I mean, I didn't see any reference to that relationship. Uh, Talk about his decision to join the Nation of Islam, his relationship with Malcolm X. Well, you know, uh, I think it's a mistake to say that Malcolm X recruited um, uh, Muhammad Ali for the Nation of Islam. Actually, it was a man named Abdul Rahman, whose name before that was Sam X, uh, Muhammad Ali saw Rahman selling copies of uh, Muhammad Speaks in uh, Florida and approached him and uh, told uh, Rahman that he'd been reading Muhammad Speaks, and it was uh, Rahman who invited him into the nation. Now, many people talk about that fam- famous uh, expression, no Vietnamese ever call me uh, the N-word, as they say nowadays. Uh, that was created by Rahman. They were uh, at a house 
the Muslim women were cooking uh, for uh, the, the gathering there, and uh, the reporters were outside. Ali comes in and says, ask Rahman what he should tell them. And uh, Rahman says, tell them that no Vietnamese ever called you Nick. So that's one of the mythologies that we hear about uh, Ali's career. Now, back up some. He also was following the precedent of Elijah Muhammad, who's some sort of boogeyman, even though he organized people, brought in $70 million a year, started cattle farms, which were sabotaged by racists and was engaged in international trade. I mean, that was the other side to it. I mentioned that, the criminals who were involved in the Nation of Islam. But Elijah Muhammad refused to fight in World War II. He was a conscientious objector in World War II because he would not fight the Asiatic black man. This is where Ali gets his idea of not fighting the Vietnamese. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Elijah Muhammad went around the country making pro-Japanese speeches. They tried to get him for sedition. They couldn't get him for sedition. So they got him as a draft dodger, and he spent five years uh, in prison. So uh, a lot of people don't understand that when uh, the Japanese Navy defeated what was considered a white nation, the Soviet Union, uh, in 1905, or Russia, Tsarist Russia, excuse me, in 1905, there was rejoicing all over the country. People like W. Du Bois, uh, George Schuyler, and others praised this as a victory of a black nation over a white uh, nation, imperialist nation. So this was the kind of background that led to Muhammad Ali refusing to uh, fight in war, uh, the Vietnam War. This is a clip from the documentary The Trials of Muhammad Ali featuring Abdul Rahman Muhammad, uh, who helped introduce Ali to the Nation of Islam. Cassius Clay was training for the Sonny Liston fight for the heavyweight championship. I wanted him to be a registered Muslim. When you come into Islam, we write a letter saying we believe in the teachings and we put our slave name in the letter. Those names the slave master had when they owned our ancestors. So he wrote his letter, sent it off to Chicago, and then they sent back what we call X. He became Cassius X. And then the promoters they was trying to get Ali to denounce the religion. And they told Ali, you got to get rid of the Muslim cooks and Captain Sam, that's me, and denounce that religion, otherwise there ain't going to be no fight. Well, Ali had been training all his life for the fight for the heavyweight championship, so that's something to scare a man to death. And I said, oh, man, don't believe that. I said, money is the white man's God. And I said, you're the only one who can make any money for him. I said, hold to your belief. After Cassius Clay changed his name to Muhammad Ali, many news outlets refused to use his name. The debate over his name even extended into the ring. During a 66 interview with Howard Cosell, Muhammad Ali accused challenger Ernie Terrell of being an Uncle Tom for refusing to call him Muhammad Ali. You continue to be unafraid of this man. Yeah, uh, I'd like to say something right here. You know, Cassius Clay, yes. Why do you want to say Cassius Clay when Howard yes. Cosell and everybody is calling you Muhammad Ali? Now, why you got to be one of all people who's color to keep saying Cassius Clay? Uh, Howard Cosell is not the one who's going to fight you. I am. <laughs> you uh, it really you... hard on yourself now. Well, why uh, don't you keep the thing in the sport angle? Why don't you call me my name, man? Well, what's your name? You told me your name was Cassius Clay a few I years ago. I never told you my name was Cassius Clay. My name is Muhammad Ali. You uh, just acting just like an old Uncle Tom. Another flawed Patterson. I'm going to punish you. Let me tell you something, man. You ain't got no Back off of me. me. Don't Back call me no me. Uncle Tom. That's man. what you are, an Uncle Tom. Why are you going to call me Uncle Tom? What I ain't doing You heard me. me no just Uncle back Tom. off of me. And so, ladies and Uncle gentlemen. Tom? As the two contestants prepare for battle right now, back off of me, man. Back off of me, man. Another interview has been recorded for posterity as the two gentlemen continue to promote the fight. So that was Howard Cosell with Muhammad Ali and Ernie Terrell. And in the midst of that fight, uh, which Muhammad Ali won, as he was punching Ernie Terrell, he was saying, What's my name? What's my name?
U.S. television live broadcast a Muslim prayer service June 9th. Of course, it was a memorial for world champion athlete and activist Muhammad Ali, who died June 3rd. And the fact that many Americans will likely see a janazah for the first time in association with a widely admired and beloved figure is some reflection of the intentionality of Ali's life. He planned, one guest told AP, for it to be a teaching moment. Coverage of Muhammad Ali's death can be a sort of teaching moment for media watchers as well, in the sense that it's good to remember that the version of a person that corporate media embrace and concretize in the public mind sometimes blurs that person's political complexity. So while media talked about Ali's conversion to Islam and his refusal to be inducted into the army because, as some even quoted, he refused, in his words, to go 10,000 miles from home to help murder and burn another poor nation simply to continue the domination of white slave masters of the darker people the world over. It's still hard, though, to convey how these things were heard, including by media, or what it meant to say them in 1967. Reading today, you might not know that, as sports writer Dave Zirin reminds us, Ali was deemed so dangerous his phone was bugged by the Johnson and Nixon administrations. That out on bail in 1968, he spoke at 200 college campuses. That peace activist Daniel Berrigan called him a major boost to an anti-war movement that was very white. That he would later describe his break with Malcolm X as his biggest mistake. Outlets like the New York Times didn't start using his name until years after he changed it, preferring dismissive locutions like Clay, who prefers to call himself Muhammad Ali. And here's sports journalist Jerry Eisenberg from the New Jersey Star-Ledger, recounting the effect of his own 1967 defense of Muhammad Ali's draft refusal. Quote, Some papers that carried my column regularly dropped it. Bomb threats emptied our office, making the staff stand out in the snow. My car windshield was smashed with a sledgehammer. Among the thousands of pieces of hate mail I received, two required the attention of postal inspectors. One turned out to be nothing but a ticking alarm clock, and the second contained what I hoped was dog feces. Close quote. Well, at the time, facing five years in prison, Ali himself addressed the media, saying, quote, I strongly object to the fact that so many newspapers have given the American public and the world the impression that I have only two alternatives in this stand. Either I go to jail or go to the army. There is another alternative, and that alternative is justice. Close quote. It ain't bragging if it's true. It ain't bragging if it's true. It ain't bragging if it's true. Said Muhammad Ali. Me, my love put the deep in the ocean. My love took the sky, going with the blue. And my love caused a big old commotion. Cause that's what love do. Th th thought you knew. It ain't bragging if it's true. It ain't bragging if it's true. It ain't bragging if it's true. Said Muhammad Ali. Dalia Magahed was one of the speakers at Thursday's Islamic funeral. Magahed is the director of research at the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding, one of two Muslim members of President Obama's Faith Advisory Council. Dalia Magahed, you were only one of three, including the imam, who spoke at the Islamic funeral, the prayer service yesterday. What did you say? What I said was that Muhammad Ali taught us how to be free. He taught us how to be free by relinquishing our attachments to the world. He owned fame and fortune and never allowed it to own him. And that's why he was able to stand with principle uh, above popularity and chose conscience above conformity. And it was in this way that he freed himself and acted as a symbol and as an example for how we can all free ourselves through his spirituality. Can you talk about his name, Muhammad Ali, what it means and how he got it? Absolutely. He, he got his name because it was, it was given to him by, um, his, his religious leader, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. It means, Muhammad, the name means praised in the heavens and the earth. And, and one of the themes of my, my brief remarks yesterday was that he, 
that 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 funeral with people from all over the world, every color and creed, were, were testimony to the fact that he was praised in the heavens and the earth, but that he wasn't always that way. He, for for some time, was rejected by the public, was demonized, but because he stood with his principles, uh, God's promise came true, which which said that if you put God first, he will make the people love you. And his name actually was a testimony to that, praised by God and by the people. What is the legacy, uh, Dahlia, of African-Americans accepting Islam in America? Talk about Muhammad Ali and uh, Islam. It seems very much it's odd to use the term the white elephant in the room. Well, it's interesting, Amy, how much we are um, commemorating uh, Muhammad Ali, uh, praising his his stance and his conscientious conscientious objector status, his principle, and yet completely ignoring the source of that strength, which was his Islamic faith. We are de-Islamicizing Ali. Um, interestingly, at the time, Islam was being blamed for his stance, which was so unpopular. Today, we are praising it, but not giving Islam and his spirituality any credit. This this faith was central to his world uh, view. It was it was where he drew his strength from, and um, I think that that legacy uh, of of indigenizing Islam, of making Islam a part of mainstream America is so important today. Um, Ali is a reminder that Islam enriches America, that America would be a, uh, a weaker, less prosperous, less safe country if Islam was not part of its story. It is interesting that people like, if there's anyone like Muhammad Ali, are marginalized um, during their prime years, but later idolized. Are you concerned that the iconization of Muhammad Ali will leave out the what you are most drawn to about him? And if you can talk about what that is. You know, what I am most drawn to is is his strength of character, his um, his clear moral compass that even in the hardest times of his life, even when he had to walk away from things he had worked for his whole life, uh, he he was able to do that. And today we we look back on him and and it's this whitewashing, it's this it's this revisionism of who he was, where where we want to be very comfortable, it, you know. So many things about Muhammad Ali today would make us uncomfortable. The first being his his Muslim faith, something that we are as a as a country now so comfortable demonizing, and and so we can't both love Ali and honor him and say we should ban Muslims from America. It, it's not possible. We can't have both of those realities coexist. So if we honor Ali today, we have to at the same time recognize the contribution of Islam and Muslims to the United States. And my concern is not that we uh, we, icon, uh, we honor uh, him as an icon. I think that we should, and he, he is. He's, he's, he was called, Sports Illustrated called, it, called him the, the sportsman of the century. He is an icon. But with that, we have to take the whole Ali. We can't pick and choose, and we can't revise him to what makes us comfortable. Flow like a butterfly, sting like a bee. My name is Muhammad Ali. Flow like a butterfly, sting like a bee. My name is Muhammad Ali. His heart is tender, his soul is free. Don't cry for Muhammad Ali. Yes, it was a little bit surreal uh, for Muhammad Ali's last send-off. 22,000 people packed the place. The tickets were free. It had been planned for years by Muhammad Ali himself. And some of the speakers just not only brought the house down, but made history. And we want to play some of the clips for you. 
let's start with the words of Muhammad Ali's widow, the person who was married to him for three decades, Yolanda Ali. Some years ago, during his long struggle with Parkinson's in a meeting that included his closest advisors, Muhammad indicated that when the end came for him, when his, he wanted us to use his life and his death as a teaching moment for young people, for his country, and for the world. In effect, he wanted us to remind people who were suffering that he had seen the face of injustice, that he grew up in a segregation, and that during his early life, he was not free to be who he wanted to be. But he never became embittered enough to quit or to engage in violence. It was a time. This was an interfaith service. Iman spoke, Native American religious leaders spoke, preachers, bishops, priests, the Shoshone, the people of the Longhouse, and actually the translator of the Native American religious service was Chief Orrin Lyons, who actually was the goalie on the Syracuse lacrosse team for a man who is sitting right there in the front row, Jim Brown. And two rabbis, one of those rabbis, Michael Lerner, spoke less about religion and more channeled the political spirit of Muhammad Ali, the spirit of telling uncomfortable truths. So I wanna say, how do we honor Muhammad Ali? And the answer is the way to honor Muhammad Ali is to be Muhammad Ali today. And that means us, everyone here and everyone listening. It's up to us to continue that ability to speak truth to power. We must speak out, refuse to follow the path of conformity to the rules of the game in life. We must refuse to follow the path of conformity. Tell the 1% who own 80% of the wealth of this country that it's time to share that wealth. Tell the politicians who use violence worldwide and then preach nonviolence to the oppressed, that it's time for them to end their drone warfare and every other form of warfare, to close our bases around the world, to bring the troops home, tell those who created mass incarceration that it's time to create a guaranteed income for everyone in our society. Tell judges to let out of prison the many African-Americans swept up by, the, by racist police and imprisoned by racist judges. And many of them in prison today for offenses like possessing marijuana that white people get away with all the time. Tell our elected officials to imprison those who authorized torture and those who ran the big banks and investment companies that caused the economic collapse of 2008. Tell the leaders of Turkey to stop killing the, killing the Kurds. Tell Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu that the way to get security is for Israel is to stop the occupation of the West Bank and help create a Palestinian state. And a speaker who's certainly not my cup of tea, but whose presence was honestly very powerful, was senior Republican Senator Orrin Hatch. I mean, think about it for a second. Orrin Hatch, first of all, he Muhammad Ali wanted him there. They'd been friends for 30 years. Orrin Hatch was a former boxer. But there's something about the senior Republican senator showing up to this funeral in the age of Trump that tragically seemed almost rebellious. Ali didn't look at life through the binary lens of Republican-Democrat, so common today. He saw worthy causes and shared humanity. In Ollie's willingness to put principles ahead of partisanship, he showed us all the path to greatness. And I'll never forget that greatness, nor will I ever forget him. But the speaker who I want to end on is Ambassador Atala Shabazz, Malcolm X's daughter. I really want to encourage people to find this speech and listen to it in its entirety. I want to encourage people to find the transcript and read it because what Atala Shabazz did was she helped us understand history 
One moment that historians have pondered over is the split between Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X. Entire books have been written about this dynamic. And here is Atala Shabazz speaking publicly, really for the first time, about her decades-long friendship with Muhammad Ali, about how, in effect, he became another father to her after the passing of Malcolm. This moment is very meaningful for me to have been amongst those chosen and blessed by Muhammad himself and affirmed by his wife, Lonnie, to take part by sharing a prose statement during this homegoing ceremony. While he and I had a treasured relationship, the genesis of this love was through the love for my father. Muhammad Ali was the last of a fraternity of amazing men bequeathed to me directly by my dad. Somewhere between me turning 18, 19, or 20, they all seemed to find me somehow guided by an oath or a promise to my dad long after him leaving this earth to search for me. And they did, each one remaining in my life until joining the rest of the heavens, beloved summit of fearless humanitarians. This included Muhammad Ali, whom my dad loved as a little brother, 16 years his junior, and his entrusted friend. There was a double take when I came upon him, a once childhood first child, and now looking right into his face. And you know how he is. You know, he gives you that little dare, like, is that you? From the very moment we found one another, it was as if no time had passed at all, despite all of the presumptions of division, despite all the efforts at separation, despite all of the organized distancing. We dove right into all of the unrequited, yet stated, and duly acknowledged spaces we could explore and uncover privately. We cried out loud. His belt, his grief for having not spoken to my dad before he left. And then just as loudly we'd laugh about the best of stories and some that can't be repeated. He was really funny. I'm moved just just hearing that. Now, during the day, I was doing some commentary for MSNBC, and walking around the media center was also an experience unto itself. At one point on the ESPN panel, 10 feet from us, were two former guests of this podcast, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Dr. Harry Edwards, and then a guy who I just happened to be writing a book about, Jim Brown, and this incredible collection of people was being questioned by Jeremy Schapp, Hannah Storm, and the person who you're going to hear from right now, Howard Bryant. Well, considering that I never got a chance to meet Muhammad Ali, this is, this is the, the best case scenario to be part of this, to see the institutional memory, to see it in action, to see the number of people that he touched. And I think the thing that I really like about this is its simplicity. This is not a celebrity event. You don't need tickets to this event. It doesn't cost any money to be here. What you see is exactly what Muhammad Ali was in real life. He was the people's champion. He was part of the community no matter how far away from it he got. He never got far away from it, no matter what he accomplished, no matter how high he, he ascended. He was always one of us. And to the community in Louisville, one of them. He was one of theirs. And... We talk about these things so often, and they don't match up in real life. This is authentic. This is real. If you care about the 20th century, especially if you care about the 20th century black athlete, you certainly want to see this. But I think what it means more, to, I mean, what means more to me about all of it is the fact that, that everything that you thought about Muhammad Ali is embodied in this one afternoon. Now, you've made a hell of a career for yourself by really exploring this kind of intersection of sports history and political history. How much of your, you know, this is like the butterfly test. Like, how much of the fact that Muhammad Ali flapped those wings has anything to do with the fact that you do this for a living? 
It's 100%. It's 100% because this is one thing that if you're not the target, you don't understand it. If you're not the person in the bullseye, you don't get it and you'll never get it. And that is, is that when you are on the bottom, or when you believe you are on the bottom, you need somebody to remind you or someone to prove to you that you're not on the bottom, that you do have value, that there's something about you that is special and that things can be done. And with the African-American athlete, with the African-American citizen, no matter how much you may believe in yourself, you need to see it. You need proof that you can succeed. He was that proof. He provided that proof. He provided proof in so many ways that had nothing to do with athletics. And it's driving me crazy how mismanaged so much of this narrative has been. When people talk about, oh, well, you know, Muhammad Ali is great because he stood up for what he believed in. No, that's not it. There are a lot of people who stand their ground. There are a lot of people who are unwavering in their beliefs. What makes him different is that he stood for what he stood for without wavering, and he stood for poor people. He stood for underdogs. He stood for peace. He stood against power. He stood for all of those things that our culture tells you you have to run away from if you want to be successful. You have to run toward money. He ran away from money, and he was still rich. He lived the authentic life that everyone says they want, but don't really do a whole lot to attain. We just heard clips starting with an old newsreel about Ali refusing to be inducted into the military during the Vietnam War. John Legend recited the speech Ali gave in Louisville, Kentucky, explaining his refusal to participate in the war. Tom Hartman asked the question of why we sanitize our heroes. Democracy Now! told the story of Ali's refusal to fight in Vietnam. Dave Zirin on Edge of Sports spoke with Bob Lipsight about getting past the effusive praise to some of the more ragged edges of Ali's legacy. Citizen Radio broke down exactly why it's total bullshit to say that someone has transcended race. Democracy Now! spoke with Ishmael Reed about Ali's untold history focusing on his religion, including a couple of clips from the archives. Counterspin remembered the extreme opposition Ali faced in his day for speaking out. Democracy Now! spoke with Dalia Magahed about the importance of not de-Islamicizing Ali while we remember him. And finally, we just heard a portion of Dave Zirin's live coverage from Ali's funeral. If you don't know already, Zirin is the go-to guy on the intersection of sports and progressive politics. So if that's up your alley, then definitely check out his show, Edge of Sports, where they did a whole week of special coverage on Ali. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And no voicemails today, nor do I have much to add myself other than just to say that, you know, I'm young enough that my first memory of Muhammad Ali in any way, in any context, is from the 1996 Olympics. And of course, I didn't know who he was or what uh, what he was all about. But he certainly made a splash at those Olympics. I, I didn't include anything on that in today's show, but I highly recommend if you have just a couple of minutes spare, go find the video on YouTube of Muhammad Ali at the 1996 Atlanta Olympics. He was the final bearer of the Olympic flame before the big torch was lit during the opening ceremonies. So if you have thoughts on Ali, your memories, how he inspired you, anything along those lines, I would love to hear them. And also a heads up that the next episode, I'm planning on doing the Orlando shooting. So if you have thoughts on that, as I'm sure many people do, uh, go ahead and get those voicemails in and we can include them in that episode. The number to dial 202-999-3991. And that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we put out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information 
information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past our own sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past our own sad stories And